It's one of those things where perhaps I should have visited before I accepted this position. I'm James Zug, and this is Outside the Glass. In 2017, the Qatar Classic remixed the production of their men's professional squash tournament. They brought in Andy Taylor as MC. Andy had never worked at a squash event before. In fact, he'd only spent one day at a squash event before he became the MC. But that wasn't a problem at all. As you'll learn here, Andy has a lot of experience. He worked in radio in North Carolina, Arizona, Florida, and Missouri. A fun and sometimes harrowing journey. He's now based in Boston. He does voiceover work for institutions and events around the world. You might have heard him this summer at the Tokyo Games. I think that was the third Olympics he's worked at. And he announces at basketball events and acts and commercials. 19 years ago, he was invited to work at the U.S. Open, the Tennis Grand Slam in New York. Today, Andy is now known as the voice of the U.S. Open. And if you go to Flushing Meadows, you'll hear Andy introducing the players and narrating or hosting ceremonies inside Arthur Ashe Stadium. And he does every announcement heard throughout the grounds. And he's also doing the BBC radio's coverage of the tournament. So here's a little bit about the man behind the voice. All right, so let's start with your... Uh... Uh, your dad was a radio guy. Yeah. And you got into radio, and, and you were down in North Carolina? I'm in a lot of places. So, where yeah. Did, where did you start? So, I, I grew up in, in a broadcast family. My yeah. dad was in radio for over 50 years, just recently wow. retired. He's 75 years old. Wow. Now he's thinking about getting into podcasting. So, I'm happy to do this so I can get an idea of hey, how dad. that all works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He, wanted, he called me the other day. He said, I want to do a podcast because he's, he's really well known. He knows all the national comedians and all that. He says, I just want to do a podcast where we talk to the funniest people I've ever met. And I'm like, great. Happy to help you out. Oh, my God. I have no idea how to do a podcast. But uh, so this is, this is helpful. Um, so when I grew up watching my dad go to work and have fun. Yeah. It was just sort of a responsibility where he enjoyed himself. And that's what I wanted to do. And so as I was wrapping up high school, I thought, I really don't want to go to college. But my parents really said, you know, give it a shot. For us, give it a shot. We want to at least say that we gave you the opportunity of, a, of an education. <laughs> I said, okay. So I got a partial scholarship to Emerson College, and I right. went to Emerson. Yeah. Uh, and I did that for a semester. <laughs> and I dropped out. Um, I was already working in radio like as a production mm -hmm. guy, mixing commercials and stuff like that. So I was studying and working at the yeah. same time. And right. so I decided to put the books down because I was learning more yeah. on the job That's than right. I was I was studying mass communication. Well, I'm already doing it. Yeah. So I continued to do that for about nine months, and I got a job in, in rural North Carolina in the Blue Ridge Mountains, a little town called Lenore, furniture capital of North America, Bernhard Siegel, blue-collar, working-class, Bible Belt, polar opposite of life in, in the Northeast, in <laughs> right? <laughs> and I had an afternoon radio show there on a country music radio station, and I did crazy stuff like a sick and twisted game of the day and just goofy stuff with, uh, with fans where I'd Wait, have what people... what was the sick and twisted? What, what was that? It would, whatever bizarre thing came into my imagination for that day's show, I'd have people standing out at Cage's Mountain Superette in a bucket of ice to see how long they could stand there. And it was all theater of the mind. I didn't really know if people were doing that until somebody would go by and take a picture. This was before right. the internet. Somebody would go by and take a go picture. A week later, off. they'd say, no, Jim was really standing in that bucket yeah. of ice for, th for three hours during your entire show. <laughs> and so... 
Anyway, so I did that show. Then I went to Southeast Arizona to do a morning show. So how long were you in North Carolina? A year. So then I had an opportunity to do a morning show yeah. in Southeast Arizona, and I always wanted to do mornings because that's what my dad did, and it was more interactive, uh-huh. and, and the audience was more involved in everything that you're uh-huh. doing, so that's what I really wanted to do. So Is I, that I, higher up in the hierarchy of radio? Sort yeah. Of like morning drive is like... The big thing. When radio was a viable yeah, I mean, media entity, yeah. morning drive was where you wanted okay. to be. Okay. So that was the goal. So that was the goal. I just wanted... I was young. I was 19, 20 years old. I wanted to practice. I wanted to learn. I wanted to be in these small markets with small communities so that I could improve my skills and talents and, and move up the ranks. So Southeast Arizona, what is that? So there's a little community down there called Sierra Vista. And there's a place called Fort Huachuca, which is one of the hubs of military intelligence in the United States. Yeah, it's just way out in the desert. And they would would send a blimp up every day, a tethered blimp, and that's what monitored the the Mexican border. And these are things that we have in play down there, so we really don't need a wall, but that's a whole other story. These were things that were in play in the mid-90s, right? But but anyway, (laughs) but people don't know because they've never visited. Um, but yeah. Southeast Arizona is where Tombstone is, yeah, that's right? right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Bisbee, yeah, that whole area. I love yeah. that area. Um, so I was on, uh, first I was on a radio station called KWCD doing a morning show, and I was informed two days after I arrived that uh, they were really excited to have me, and thank you very much for taking over for, for Jorge. It was, uh, it was a tragic, tragic thing. And nobody had told me this, and I said, I said well, what happened? What, and then he said, oh, well, you didn't, you didn't hear? I said, no. He said, well, he had a heart attack while he was on the air. This is like a beloved member of the community that was part of the morning show. And uh, the guy had a heart attack Live. while he was on the air. And I said, you're, you're kidding. I had no idea. I said, yeah, he was sitting in the chair you're sitting in right now. <laughs> oh, my God. You're like, this is like Spinal Tap in the yeah, no, bizarre no. guarding accidents it of was, the drummers. It, uh, <laughs> it was tremendously humbling. Uh, I'm in this small little building out in the middle of the desert. It has a, a bomb shelter mm. attached to it, but the bomb shelter is completely worthless because they've cut a hole in it to put a, an air conditioning unit in. Um, <laughs> and now I've been told, I, and I'm working with an audio board that's on top of a, a table, or, or the table is essentially a door that's been placed on top of two, two. file cabinets. And then there's an audio console on top of that. I mean, it was... Awesome. It's one of those things where perhaps I should have visited before I accepted <laughs> maybe, this position. Maybe right? <laughs> I should have gone out and said, great, we've had some super conversations on the phone. Let me see the property first. Uh, but I was young. Who cares? Let me go check it out. And it was, it was a great growth experience. I, yeah. I did a lot of fun stuff. Um, I, I learned a lot old school radio style. I was still working with old RCA knob boards and stuff like that. I do a lot of my own engineering while I was on the air, soldering things while I'm having conversations with people just because it was, everything was so run down. And, and it was a small operation. Yeah. And you had to sort of do a little bit of everything. We had three or four radio stations and everybody had to help out with every facet of what we were doing. Yeah. And then six months in, um, Morgan, the guy over on K101, had gone up to Tucson to a club one night. He and his buddy were driving back, and they got into a car wreck, and Morgan literally uh, was decapitated in the car wreck. And guess who took over for his show? Oh, my God. I took over for two dead guys. In a row? In Sierra Vista, Arizona. And that's when I knew I probably need to get out of this market. (laughs) 
right? As much as I loved the isolation, being out in the desert, yeah. going out to Gleason, these, these small little communities where nobody's around and just feeling like you're in the old west, mm. it was time to move on. So then I went to South Florida and I was in West Palm Beach. And I worked at a... That is completely different from totally. Southeast Again, Arizona. right? Yeah. Oh, my God. So I worked on a, a country music station there uh, at the time called WCLB. And about... I was doing overnights. So what does that mean? Uh, that was fun, actually, because there's like a legion of people who are working overnight, whether it be at a gas station or custodial or whatever that would call in and participate in the show it became like this really intensive call in listener participation show where we were just being stupid and goofy because it's you know midnight to 6 a.m um and the original intent was to include me as part of the morning show but that that never happened and then about six months after i was there the the management decided to bring in howard stern's show and put it on our morning show as a deflection to some of the other properties so that they wouldn't buy the Howard Stern program. Right. It basically tanked our radio station because we were a country music radio station, family oriented, family friendly, and they put Howard Stern on the morning show. For so hours. I, yeah. yeah. So I saw the writing on the wall there. I saw terrible decision making, as you always see in any corporate world. And I said, all right, I want to go somewhere where it's real people, normal human beings, Midwest feel, mm. and just have fun. And I took an opportunity in Springfield, Missouri at KTTS, which is a legendary country music station since 1972. Still does uh, broadcasting the old school way where we had news at the top and sometimes bottom of the hour. Um, Community focused, very family friendly. Uh, Chase tornadoes as they came in so that we could inform our neighbors of what was going on. And I was in Missouri for 18 years, 10 of those years on KTTS, and uh, I left with a 19 share in the morning drive, 2554. Okay, well, nobody knows what that means anymore. (laughs) Yeah, so So. like typically if you're number one in a market, you've got like a seven or an eight share, but we had, the show itself had a 19 share. It it was a heritage product. All I had to do was really respect that, respect the heritage of what that product was, and give the audience what it expected and deliver beyond that, right. you know, a few things. And, and if you can do that, then people are going to embrace what you're doing. And, and that, was, uh, that was a great 18 years of my life. I lived out in the woods. I still heated with wood in my house. I had property. We had an RV. We had a boat. We had the life. But um, my wife, in about 2008, told me she's, she's originally from, from Germany. She's American, but she lived in Germany for 25 years. She said, you know, I'd really like to be around people for once. I'm tired of being around cows and coyotes and turkey and deer, which is nice. She liked it, but she wanted to be around. She wanted community. And, you know, we had a great community of neighbors, but everybody was a half mile away. That's right. You know, you'd, you'd start a burn in the evening and all the neighbors would show up because they'd see the glow, which I thought was the neatest thing in the world. But that's not, you know, her idea of community is, hey, we live in a condo and yes. we have neighbors downstairs. Yes. That, were, that If something's happening to me, I can actually call out and somebody will respond. <laughs> um, so, you know, we'd been to Boston many times because it's where I grew yeah, up. Yeah. And she said, hey. You know, what do you think about going to Boston? So after, did you, did, after three years, be, I retired. Before you leave Missouri, did, did the Internet change your job yeah, in any way? Yeah. 
So and going digital and here's the technology. Thing. I I started in Missouri in 1997, and I had I was originally on a station called Max 96.5, so it wasn't like the big mm. the big behemoth radio station mm. And we really built that little radio station into something fun because cell phones were readily available for people, but the internet wasn't a thing yet. So everybody's fa- everybody's Facebook page, yeah. just to put this in perspective for people, everybody's Facebook page where they overshare yeah. or their Twitter account where they completely overshare yeah. was morning radio. Because they would call in all the time. Bingo. All you had to do was plant an idea, plant a seed, and the calls would come flooding in. So you'd play a song, and during that entire song, you're recording phone calls with listeners, editing it all together, and then you get back on the air and you play that stuff back. And it's the funniest thing in the world, the conversations that you would have with people while they're driving to work with their kids in the back or whatever. It was so much fun. And then about 2003... People start using email more, and text messaging starts happening. And you, about yeah. that time, you saw radio stations trying to do text-to-win stuff and all of that. And I remember thinking, okay, this is kind of the beginning of the end. And then in 2007, when the iPhone came out, and everybody had all of that technology in the palm of their hand. You listen to any radio station in the world. Not only that, but right. why listen to the radio station? Because I have Pandora. I don't have to hear the commercials. I don't have to listen to the needless chatter from that, and that moron. And that funny guy. Right. right. God, that guy's so annoying. <laughs> you know, they don't have to, to do any of that. So, and, and plus, you know, Facebook is starting to take off, and right? So there. people have their own show on the internet now. In their pocket. And they don't have to... They don't have to choose radio anymore. And with satellite radio coming out, too, that was a competitor as well. So by 2007, 2008, that's when I said, I need to start thinking about what's next. And thankfully, by that time, I'd already been doing some announcing with the U.S. Open. Mm -hmm. I'd been doing some voiceover stuff, but I didn't throw myself into it full time. And so I signed a contract in 2008 for three years. And... There was an option for a fourth. And I told Dion, I said, okay, I think after three, I'm done. And after the third year, I opted out of the extension and retired in September of 2000. I officially retired at 38 years old <laughs> in September of 2011. And then it was my turn to dive into the internet and figure out how this whole thing works. How do you build a website? How do you represent yourself? How do you market yourself? How do you get out there? And it was chaos, but I've managed to build my own website over the years of just teaching myself through WordPress and asking for advice. Um, And that's pretty much how I market myself now. And one of the great things that happened in that interim that gave me an opportunity to still perform and express myself um, without the radio show was The Price is Right brought a show into Branson. Branson is a theater town. There How the far away West. is that from Springfield? Uh, it's 45 minutes. Yeah. So I lived in between. I lived in a little town called Sparta in between Springfield and Branson. And so I went down there and auditioned, and they were like, we would love to have you be the announcer for, for The Price is Right. And so I was like, okay, great. So I went down there and uh, did a season with several different hosts. Um, and we had the, the guy that uh, does the announcing, George, on the actual show, come in and host a few times as well. Legend, legendary guy. <laughs> and then the second season, uh, Jerry Springer hosted the show. So uh, for like three seasons in Branson, I got, got a chance to work with Jerry Springer 
hosting the Price is Right, which is just bizarre. Uh, but it was it was, was actually every, a lot of fun. Day? Was it, was it was pretty much an everyday thing. I think we had one day off, so we had six, sometimes two shows a day. So right. sometimes we do about eight shows a week, right. and it was fun, right? It's like a an hour and fifteen minutes. Fans come in, and you never know if somebody's going to win a new. We gave away two cars yeah. during the entire time that I did right. that, right. and you know the prizes weren't what you'd see on TV, but it was the experience, the live experience of. People of a game show like that, that show, right? when you have like 2,000 people Screaming. filling a theater, it was amazing. And to be the announcer, you're the guy that went out and did the warm-up, so you're like out there getting everybody amped up, and you really get to play with fans and, and juice the crowd. That was fun. That was neat. So and, I did that for a little while. And did that uh, inform any, like with the U.S. Open or here with Squash, like inform you about the audience? and? Yeah, I mean, every time you do something, it uh, it helps you grow right. right that the the anticipation and expectation that a fan already has right. like delivering on that uh, that's that was really effective with the price is right because you know I mean everybody's watched the show for for decades I mean it's a it's a legend in fact it's funny Bob Barker got his start at KTTS in Springfield Missouri in radio back in the 40s before it became a country music station. And here I was on stage doing The Price is Right Live, and I'd hosted the show on the same radio station as Bob Barker, which was pretty cool. But yeah, wow. working, that, um, wow. working that really taught me to, to deliver up to what uh, a hardcore fan expects mm. from a performance or a show or, or an event. Yeah. And the U.S. Open had happened by then? Yeah. Um, the U.S. Open, my first U.S. Open was 2002. Um, we had, imagine this, my first year, Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras final, the night before Venus and Serena Williams final. I mean, I was hooked. I really, at the time, I mean, the backstory behind the whole thing, I was uh, moving into my house in Missouri at the time, and I got a call from, from a lady at Silver Dollar City down in Branson, and she said, hey, I worked with these guys at Radio City. They're coming in, and they're doing a um, Fed Cup event at Cooper Tennis Complex in Springfield. They need an announcer. Can you do it? And I'm like, good grief. i got a million things going on. i got to get moved out of this place and into my house. But when somebody recommends you to do something, you do it, right? So I went. I did the Fed Cup event. We had Billie Jean King, Lindsay da Davenport, Chanda Rubin. Monica Sellis was there. They were taken on Israel and uh, hosted the two days. It was just voiceover from, from the booth and enjoyed it. I, I didn't mind working with the guys. I was taking scripts and just, you know, yeah. delivering what they needed. Right. And on the last day, a guy tapped me on the shoulder uh, while I was sitting there in the booth. Got a ball cap and a uh, polo shirt. And he said, what would you think about doing this at the U.S. Open in New York? <laughs> Yeah, whatever, pal. Those opportunities don't happen like that when you're in the middle of the Midwest. And so I blew them off, went, moved into my house, got back to work. Two weeks later, I got a phone call, and it was the United States Tennis Association. And they said, um, we would like to invite you to come out and try out for the lead announcer role in Arthur Ashe Stadium. And please, next time the president of the USTA taps you on the shoulder and asks you a question, don't blow him off. <laughs> oh, okay. So I went out, and that first year, I just did the night sessions. And it was electric because it was at a time where they were trying to develop the show yeah, of the right. U.S. Open instead of just, you know, 
flat line announced, players yeah. come out. It was right. very Wimbledon-esque there for a long time. And so we were really developing the theatrics of right. introducing players and uh, fan engagement and all of those aspects of sport production that are very common today. That's right. And uh, to have been a part of that, an original part of that, is uh, tremendously gratifying. And that was 2002. Uh, so to answer your question, that's when that started. And uh, yeah, by 2011, I'd already been doing this for right. for about 10 years. Right. And yeah, I think that you know, being a part of the the U.S. Open that first time has uh, I mean, it's an unforgettable experience. Yeah. You know, and, and I and I was hooked. I, honestly, before that, I grew up playing tennis. Yeah. But by that point in my life, I was 27, 28 years old. I didn't know what slams were played on dirt, asphalt, grass. Brick. I, I didn't know. You'd never gone to the U.S. Open. No, I'd and never been. You're, you're and all of a sudden, I'm there, you know, eight stories up, looking down on this massive stadium at these, you know, iconic figures walking out onto a tennis court. It was overwhelming, right. but amazing. And just, you know, out of respect for the game, out of respect for the athletes, and out of respect for the people that that brought me in, I just wanted to do the best possible job I can. And that aspect has really never changed for me. You know, always deliver up to the expectations of the people around you. Yeah. You know? So do, I mean, as you and I were talking before about, you know, doing the research and, and getting the biographies. Of so important. Right. So important. How do you do the pronunciation of the names? Yeah. <laughs> ask. You know, when in doubt, ask. And then and <clears> do you <throat> practice or you just like, if you ask, it just it sinks in. Having right. been doing voice work and for a long time, yeah, you pick up on it on it pretty quick. You just have to. Yeah, yeah you, you learn to pick. But sometimes you just have to phonetically spell it out, you know. One of the, like, it was funny, I was listening to Joey and PJ the other day. They were talking about the match referees, you know. They always say Roy Gingell. Yeah. It's not. No. It's Roy Gingell. Right. right. And then whenever Shrikan's out there, it's like, <laughs> it's awesome. And Shrikan's such a great guy. But yeah, when you get those challenging spellings like Shrikan Sashadri, uh, sometimes you have to phonetically spell it out for yourself to make sure that you don't to mess it up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially with tennis players, because some of those tennis players, it's just all consonants. Yeah. You know, if they're from Eastern Europe, Eastern some of these Europe. names are just. Yeah. Yeah, there's one player that always gave me a challenge, and I still can't to this day pronounce it properly, but he's from uh, Poland, and it's Mikhail Pszczyzny. <laughs> Mikhail Pszczyzny. I think it's Pszczyzny. Anyway, you know, that's a challenge. Yeah. And you've done not just the U.S. Open, right, in tennis? Yeah, I, uh, I've done Indian Wells. Uh, I did that for about four years. Yeah. I did um, the Memphis Open before it became uh, the New York Open. Uh, and I come out here and I do the men's event, the Qatar Exxon Mobil Open in January. It's kind of a challenge this year because the ATP has restructured things and they have this whole World Cup-ish type right. thing that's happening down right. under at the start of the year. Right. So we won't necessarily um, see an influx of the top-ranked players here in Doha, which I love to be honest with you, mm. because I like to see new talent. Yeah. I like to learn about new stories, yeah. new people. Yeah. And so I'm excited about January because I don't know who I'm going to get a chance to see. Um, and then in February, we do the ladies' event, which is the Qatar Total Open. And it's 
it switches back and forth between a premier event and a premier five event. So it's like a marquee event where you have 64 players, and then the next year it's uh, just 32 players. Right. But uh, that's, that's fun too. And then I also do a basketball tournament back in Springfield, Missouri. I go back every year. It's called the Bass Pro Tournament of Champions, and it's all the top-level high school talent in the nation. We get a chance to see them before they go pro or before they go to college. We even do a slam dunk contest. I've seen 15-year-old kids do high-flying dunks better than I've ever seen in the NBA. Um, it's where I first saw Jason Tatum from the Boston Celtics about three years ago. And, wow. yeah, so I do that for, for three days in January every year. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but I honestly, I try not to travel as much as I used to. Mm. I've really whittled it down to these three events in Doha. You mm. have the squash and the two tennis events. Uh, the U.S. Open, and that basketball tournament. Other than that, I'm in the booth doing voiceovers. Because yeah. that's the goal, right? I'm, I'm not always going to be this massively attractive. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm... The, the beard for radio. Exactly, right? I'm, I'm 45 years old. You know, and I always talk about this at the U.S. Open. They, they love sending me out on Kids Day because, I, you know, I'm engaging. I like to have fun, and I love kids. But to have a 45-year-old man out there, right, with all this Disney talent doing that show, it's, you know, after a while, people are going to go, okay, we can't be doing that anymore. the old guy. Right? So I I recognize that completely. And, you know, I've made a career with my voice. The camera work, the hosting, the presentation aspect, that's all been accidental. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like... We, well, we need this, and we know you can do it. Go do it. Right. But my goals, my intent has always been to use my voice for what I'm trying to do. Right. And so uh, now to have the opportunity to do that without having a full-time radio job and all of that has been tremendously right. rewarding over the past eight years because I can focus most of my time and attention on that when I'm not hosting an event yeah. and have to get up in front of a podium or in front right. of a camera to talk to a player or anything like that. Well, and the events are, are uh, physically exhausting, right? I mean, isn't yeah. the U.S. Open, you're there for three weeks or three something? Three and a half weeks. And, I mean, that's a... Ma- I mean, that's it is. A- well, imagine, you get a field of 128. Oh, we've got another women. field of 128. Oh, we've doubles. got doubles. Oh, we've got doubles. Oh, we've got mixed doubles. So you got five different events in one. And now with the U.S. Open, the entire qualifying uh, tournament is part of the event, right? right? Fans are showing up for that because it's free. And we do a whole production where we have team members out on court covering Roger Federer's practice, covering Novak Djokovic's practice, um, covering the qualifying matches, interviewing players after the match. And they, they wanted me to come in like a, even a week earlier this year. But I, I, I'm at a point in my life where I'm not going to spend a month in New, York. in New York to do an event. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. It's, this is not about the money. It's about being a part of an event and, and a production yeah. team. And if I'm there for an entire month, you're going to burn me out big time. You're going to burn everybody out. Well, I mean, you're working... Basically, you're working sort of 17, 18 hours a day, right? I mean, isn't it just yeah. nonstop? Yeah, you can't leave the booth. You know, you've got to be there for whatever happens on court. And when the play is actually happening, the great thing about the U.S. Open is when play is actually on court, that gives me an opportunity to dive into further research about 
Who's you know, tomorrow's match. matches yeah. and all of that. Hopefully, I've already prepared everything for that day. But sometimes things come up. And, and the other thing about the U.S. Open is because of the way a sport presentation is evolving. Now, imagine you, every surface of Arthur Ashe Stadium now is a video wall. There's content flying everywhere. So you've got statistical information that's graphic. You've got sponsor information that's graphic. The entire wall around the court where the players are, that has content on it. On the outside. Yeah. 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 And so my responsibility is not just to bring players on and off the court, but to do all of the voiceover for content that's going throughout the grounds, whether it be grounds announces or videos that are going out to the grounds or highlight packages, things like that. I have to do the voiceover for that. So while a match is going on, that's you're recording those. I'm recording them. Yeah. Like this? You have like a, a, yeah. a, a big blanket it's, over your head? The audio quality of the voiceover there is not that great because it's me, a DJ, a director, an audio engineer, and uh, the controllers for the video walls that surround the court all in one tiny little room. So what I do is I just look at everybody and I go, all right, everybody shut up for about 10 minutes. I got to get this recorded. <laughs> and then, you know, record something and upload it to a, a share box and you know, the producers download it mix it and push it so it's yeah it's um it's harrowing outside the glass would like to thank our producer grant irving and all our loyal listeners who have reviewed and rated the podcast shared their enthusiasm for it on facebook twitter and instagram and more importantly have spread the word by talking about outside the glass with their squash friends and may all your nicks roll